foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Danica from Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP. 107.9 FM. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can check out our website at www.codepink.org forward slash radio, where you'll find all of our radio episodes from episode one to our most recent. Um, I'm a really, really excited today. We have an amazing guest um, who is joining us from Bethlehem. Um, please Welcome, George Rishmawi. Uh, he is the co-founder and co-director of the Siraj Center um, and does a lot of uh, tours in, in, in Palestine and actually uh, was the tour guide for our Palestine coordinator, Noor, who I will let introduce herself now. Hi, my name is Noor. I am the Palestine campaigner with Code Pink. Awesome. Well, thanks, George. Thanks. Thank you so much for being uh, with us today and taking the time out of your day. Um, so this this topic, uh, our title for today's show is Feminism in War, Rejecting the Dehumanization of Palestinian Men. We'll be joined um, after this section um, with Amira from SJP Chicago, or from <laughs> the former co-chair of SJP Chicago, um, to sort of talk about, you know, the feminist lens uh, of the situation in Palestine. Um, but I think it's first uh, important to sort of understand um, how Palestinian men are treated on the front lines of this of this situation in, in the occupation, whether it be in Gaza or the West Bank or in 1948 Palestine. Um, so, George, thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, my first question for you is, um, can you sort of just give... An, over, an overview and let us know what is occurring on the ground, like in the West Bank currently, because I feel like all eyes are on Gaza and um, people are talking less about the West Bank. Sure. Um, thank you, Danica. Um, good evening uh, from Palestine. Marhaba Noor. Salaamu Alaikum for all of the listeners in uh, all over the United States. Thank you, Kurt Pink, for this initiative. First of all, since um, this year, 2023, has been the deadliest year uh, for Palestinians in the West Bank since years. Um, since uh, October 7th until uh, November 10th, this is the last uh, calculation, so there were there 188 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank. And uh, within the same a week later, then we had like 
another seven or eight people killed, and every day there are people killed. So it's totaling over 200 Palestinians were killed in the past five weeks. Over 400 Palestinians in the West Bank were killed by the fascist Israel since um, the beginning of the year, since January 1st. This has been the deadliest year in, in years. After, the, um, uh, after October 7th in Gaza, the uh, Zionist regime started taking um, uh, a lot of, uh, made the lives of the Palestinians in the West Bank very difficult. Number one, uh, in imposing and closing all checkpoints. Palestinian towns and cities in the past 22 years were surrounded by gates. These gates could be closed in a few minutes to make the lives of the people so difficult, so no freedom of movement. All the gates were closed. All the roads that didn't have gates were also uh, uh, roadblocks. Israeli bulldozers put roadblocks. So uh, there, the entire Bethlehem area, there are two roads now only to leave and come in uh, the Bethlehem area. One to either go north and we have to cross a major Israeli checkpoint and one goes uh, outside of Bethlehem to the southern area, which is a very difficult dirt road that people have to take. Everything else is tightly uh, closed. At Israeli checkpoints, Israeli soldiers stop Palestinians, check for their uh, check their mobiles, and they see if they have uh, if they are a participant on a Telegram channel, if they have posted any videos about the situation. They check their Facebook directly from their telephones. And if the Israelis don't like you, they can arrest you, torture you, harass you, even shoot at you while at the checkpoint. Number two, Israeli escalation, Israeli settlers escalation, attacking Palestinian towns and villages. Two days after the attacks, uh, the attacks started on Gaza, Israeli settlers in the village of Surra, Surra which is outside of Nablus, um, they shot and killed four Palestinians. Uh, in the funeral of those Palestinians, the settlers ambushed the funeral, which was coming to town and killed a father and a son. That was in one day, six Palestinians were killed by settlers. Now, uh, all of this uh, was, uh, all the settler activities are coordinated and uh, well-designed and uh, guarded by the Israeli military. The mandate of the Israeli military normally is the protection of the Israeli settlers. So all settlers' activities, if they use weapons, and Israel distributed about 27,000 pieces of weapons coming from the United States to uh, the hands of the Israeli settlers, uh, when these weapons were distributed, that made the settlers much more violent. Um, so nowadays we are facing that many of the uh, Palestinian Bedouin communities, settlers were attacking them and asking them to leave. And if they don't leave, they will be shot at and killed. So we have number of Bedouin local communities that were totally displaced out of their communities due to the settlers' violence guarded by the Israeli military again. Um, this was well coordinated and well put together. 
and this is still going on. So ethnic cleansing in the West Bank totally continued. Now, um, uh, all checkpoints to go in and out of Jerusalem were totally closed. All permits were closed. All Palestinian cheap labor were allowed to leave Jerusalem and to come back home. And that's why Israel is working to replace them with uh, labor, cheap labor from coming from India. India, which is the largest uh, consumer of Israeli uh, arms and Israeli arms because Israel is um, Israeli industry depends a lot on um, the manufacturing of arms and uh, tanks and uh, everything uh, to, and to weapons and so on. And India is the largest consumer. So um, no doubt that this can happen. I think that is uh, that was uh, has been taking place. The most interesting thing as well that happened is the rules of engagement for the Israeli military has been uh, changed. Rules of engagement that is allowing the Israeli soldiers to shoot and kill at anything. So the soldiers were free-handed to shoot and kill at anything. So uh, the soldiers can shoot you and kill you anywhere. It's without any percussions, uh, without any consequences for um, shooting and killing Palestinians. So the soldiers are totally free-handed in shooting and killing uh, Palestinians. As the rules of engagement change the next day of October 7th. And actually, since this Israeli um, uh, government, uh, the Israeli ultra-right-wing government supported by the Biden government, the UK, Italy, and Germany, and France, uh, this racist government is getting all the support of these supposedly to call, call themselves democracies. They are supporting this ultra-right-wing government with all of its racist policies. Since this ultra-right-wing government, the Israelis have been um, the changing the rules of engagement, distributing more and more weapons to the settlers. And within the uh, Israeli jails where Palestinian political, political prisoners and our freedom fighters were uh, present, also a humiliation process has been taking place against the Palestinian political prisoners within within the Israeli jails, led by Ben Gavir himself. So today, the Israelis leak out some videos that's showing how they humiliate the Palestinian prisoners by getting them naked and making all crazy, difficult things about them, things that we really cannot see. Uh, this is one of the issues that uh, for years and years, Palestinian political prisoners have been put in the Israeli jails. That is really, this means that they will be dying there. And by all means, Israelis refuse to release uh, children, women, sick people, people who are facing death, people having cancer to be released at all. Um, and this is one of the reasons that makes Palestinians constantly angry uh, because of the way that our prisoners are being treated and intentionally put to die. Um, 
in addition uh, to uh, to all of this, um, today we what we are seeing that uh, life in um, the West Bank in the past forty days have be, been very very hard, very difficult. Um, the Palestinian, the Israelis, even confiscated the Palestinian money which is uh, uh, not according to the Oslo Agreement, they should pay it. It's the right of the Palestinian government to do what, whatever uh, is needed. So the Palestinian economy is totally dead <clears throat> at the moment. Um, uh, sales in the supermarkets dropped to less than 50%. That's in the West Bank. Why? Because there is no any type of uh, economic activity and uh, the Palestinian government couldn't pay for the month of October. And until today, we are 16th of November and the salaries haven't been paid. Already uh, for the month of September, what was paid is only 80% of the salary. So no salaries, uh, no tourism, mobility is very difficult. The prices of raw materials went very high. So we're talking about uh, the, the economy in the West Bank is totally killed. And this is pushing more and more people to go below the poverty line. Uh, and this affects their well-being and their ability to go to um, uh, health care, especially health care and schooling. Um, so this is a picture uh, that we have today in the West Bank. Uh, all every... Um, uh, all the air we breathe is controlled by Israel. Our destiny at the moment is controlled by Israel. It is very hard to move, to do, and to say anywhere. Uh, we are allowed to be killed, but never to, uh, to scream from anger. That is exactly what we are allowed to have. So that's a situation that we're... It looks like the power shut off, maybe? Okay, George said that they had a power outage, so um, he is going to join in just one, one minute. All right. That's well, if that can illustrate um, for, for our listeners. Oh, George is back. <laughs> Hi, George. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um Something wrong in my house with electricity. It's okay. Um, okay, let's continue. <laughs> um, Noor, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah, thanks, George, for giving us that comprehensive overview of just the way Israel basically just has all their oppressive force on every aspect of Palestinian life. Like, It's very clear that there's nothing left untouched. Um, but can you tell us more about like the daily experiences of Palestinian men living under occupation and how the occupation specifically targets them? Okay, um, I think this is a very good uh, question. That let's, uh, Normally, I don't speak about Palestinian men, I speak about more Palestinian women. So we live in, um, uh, we live in an Oriental community. Within an oriental community, uh, that means um, women and children are the most marginalized groups. So we live in a male-dominated society, all right? So we, when you live in a male-dominated society, 
uh, when there is any kind of atrocities imposed on the, on males, you know, uh, there are percussions, uh, there are consequences that reaches and touches the uh, la, the, the more marginalized women and children, anyway. So we live in a male-dominated society, which is not, it's not something that I accept personally or I agree with, but this is how our community is living. And in order to change that to, to much more a pluralistic so, so community and to a better society, we need, number one, to get rid of occupation. And to get rid of occupation, this is a, we, we totally today rely on the friends and supporters from all over the world. We believe in the power of people, not in the power of Biden, not in the power of Macron, not in those, the power of people who are demonstrating everywhere. And democracy means the power of people. Those people should be punished in any democratic elections that will take place because that's what the power of the people are, what's the power of the people when you raise your voice. So when I am as a Palestinian uh, male, uh, I am uh, badly treated at checkpoints. First of all, um, we have about 150,000 Palestinians who are cheap labor. Those 150,000 Palestinian cheap labor, every morning, like labor come from uh, Ramal, uh, Hebron and Bethlehem area, the ones I know, they come to the main Bethlehem checkpoint. The main Bethlehem checkpoint, which was built by um, uh, American dollars, uh, given and provided more than 15 years ago by the U.S. Congress for Israel to, quote-unquote, enhance the lives of Palestinians at Israeli checkpoints. So Israel was building these modern technology checkpoints where you walk through the first revolving gate, and then you come to the second revolving gate, and then you come to a place where you have to go through another revolving gate, which is the third one, and then where you have to be completely searched. And then you go to the another, you go through another revolving gate, which will be the fourth one, and then you go to the fifth revolving gate, but that you have to show that you have a permit. You put your magnetic card, and then you cross. Uh, to the other side, and this will be five revolving gates, you'll be searched totally, and then you have to prove that you have a permit. So Palestinian cheap labor, every morning, some people start lining up like at four in the morning to make it to uh, their job at seven. And that's a very difficult condition, and this is a lot of humiliation that people have to face. Um, at Israeli checkpoints, and this is every day coming back and forth. Imagine you Palestinians have a car. You are not allowed to drive your car um, across uh, the checkpoint. There are. This is very very difficult. Today also, uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinians who are um, uh, traveling within the West Bank today, uh, we have to go through all of the, before October seventh. But today mobility is very difficult. Like today, there was uh, uh, all the Bethlehem areas were, were totally closed. We had to have the schools 
uh, leave by 11 o'clock. Uh, so I brought my son back home around 11.15, back home, uh, because there was a group of Palestinians resisting the Israeli occupation at one of the checkpoints, and they were killed, and so all of the checkpoints were completely closed, which is uh, a point of collective punishment. So collective punishment, which is when it is happening, it happens on all Palestinians. All entire families are uh, uh, collectively punished, men, women, and children. But when you are uh, also as a male, you are also punished and humiliated. Of course, you have your anger, and that comes more, mainly on the less, on the more marginalized. And that does affect the more marginalized within the community, because this is how it happens today in the West Bank and in Gaza. We are living in these Bantustans. We Palestinians living in this big Israeli designed jails for us. Where uh, today Bethlehem is uh, a very highest density population in the West Bank, the second after Gaza in Palestine. We are living in a big jail. In this big jail, it's actually the power is in, is in the hand of the strongest. You have to be so strong uh, that uh, to be able to survive such conditions, you're living in jail. Imagine this situation. Um, and this is where uh, we're living in jail mentality. We are in a very big prison. We, we have in a place in America, you call them the projects. So life is very difficult. Um, um, and that, that this impact where Palestinian male, uh, that they have to work and work and work to make the income for uh, their families. Nowadays, Palestinian men and women work and work and work, and they almost make something for the families. Imagine in the past five weeks, there is no work. There is no job for anybody. What are the consequences on the families? What are the consequences of the families that cannot afford health care? people who with the chronic diseases, women with the chronic diseases and their families cannot buy their medications. Uh, imagine families who have to go to Jerusalem for cancer treatment where they are not allowed to. Imagine, uh, I know my cousin, for example, have a, a cancer treatment in Jerusalem. It's very difficult for her to reach Jerusalem. So it is becoming very hard. Uh, so normally, in any male-dominated society, when you when male are humiliated in such con in such conditions, normally people who pay the price twice are the less or the more marginalized women are children. I hope that my answer is clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you were saying that you you have a son or two sons. Sorry, two, two sons. Um, two boys. Older they. 19 and 15. Um, I, I'm just curious, you said that, you know, you have a hard time at checkpoints. Your sons are relatively young. I was wondering about the experience for like younger Palestinian men, like even in their teens, if there's, you know, some sort of, because we were talking about, uh, I talked about it with Amira, who was the second uh, interviewee for this radio show. We're talking about like how people, in the West tend to have like a lot more compassion for children 
But then when boys reach reach a certain age, for some reason, that compassion seems to stop, whether they're 15 or 18. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Can, can I tell you about my friends in Gaza about this? Right. Because my boys are lucky, you know. My boys are luckier than many other kids in town because um, we spend a lot of our savings for my kids to be able to see the world, <laughs> you know. Because the best thing for kids is to travel and to see the world and to see everything. So my boys are more lucky than any other boys, to, to, to be honest with you. Well, but let me tell you about my friends in Gaza. Last time I was in Gaza two years ago. Imagine, how old are you, Danica? I'm 24. 24. And Noor, you're the same age, I think. I'm 23. Yes. So imagine that in your entire lives, what you have seen over landscape is only the Mediterranean Sea. You have been, imagine in your entire life, what you can see is only Chicago. You cannot drive to um, South Illinois. You cannot drive to Detroit. You cannot drive to Wisconsin at all. Imagine that you are living in Washington, D.C., and you were not allowed to leave you to leave it. Today, we have millions of Palestinians that are living in similar conditions. They, like young people, which is more than 50%, more than 70% of the people in Gaza Strip are, are Palestinians, young Palestinians, between the age of, less than the age of 18, until the age of 28, according to the United Nations standards, those people have never seen anything outside of the 365 square kilometers. Imagine, this, this is a, a, a very uh, difficult conditions. Young people in Gaza, I was talking to them about uh, different hiking trails in the world globally and those and, and those people, they have never seen a mountain in their entire lives. They have never seen any green area in their entire lives. They have never seen a stream of water, but a stream of sewage in their entire lives. I, I, imagine this is what we, what do we expect out of this? So imagine this is what they have seen in their entire lives, that uh, 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 this landscape, and their experience of life is very limited to a certain area. Young Palestinians today living in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip, their lives is completely uh, uh, put in one uh, particular area, do not leave it, and mobility is very difficult. And freedom of movement is denied. Normally, what is the difference between young people and old people? Young people normally have dreams. You know, and they want to achieve their dreams. What the dreams are of the young Palestinians today is travel to be able to see something different. They have never experienced, they have never seen before. You know, we see life on television, but you know, imagine you see life on television that you cannot do anything, any of it. So today we Palestinians live on social media. Live, we spend a lot of our life lives on social media 
it's not very easy to be able to justify for young people why they cannot leave, why they cannot travel. Uh, um, nowadays, uh, if you are above the age of 50 or above the age of 60, you don't need an Israeli permit because to be able to go to, um, to, go to Jerusalem and uh, to what we call Israel proper, you need to have a permit issued by the Israeli military. Now, this permit, uh, you won't get it unless you have uh, certain uh, certain issues. Number one, should be married. Number two, you should be at the uh, above the age of 27, so you'll be able to get, I think, a working permit. And that, you know, it's not very easy to be able to do that. And if you are above the age of 60, you don't need a permit at all, you know? So uh, it depends. And we Palestinians today, we are not allowed to travel from what we call Tel Aviv airport, uh, which is way cheaper and way easier for us to travel, which is the same airport Palestinians built in 1929. It's called Lidda Airport. Israelis call it Ben Gurion Airport today. You know, it's, you are so lucky, only 3,000 Palestinians are allowed to use it. We have to go to Jordan. Crossing to Jordan to be able to travel. Uh, the, we, we, uh, 20 years ago, we used to have an airport in Jerusalem, which is between Ramallah and Jerusalem. Israel shut it down rather than handing it over to the Palestinians to use as an airport for travel. Israel shut it down. Uh, there was an airport in, in Gaza and Rafah. Israel shelled it down. It's totally destroyed, and we are not allowed to use it. We have to use what was designed for us from either crossing to Jordan to travel, which is uh, uh, very expensive. Every flight from in and out of Jordan costs you $500 to $1,000 extra. It's more and more expensive from Amman. And we have to wait and then Imagine the Israeli airport functions 24-7, but the crossing borders with Jordan uh, on Fridays, it all, it all works until noontime. So if your flight arrives at two o'clock, if your flight arrives to Amman airport at 10 or 11 o'clock, you cannot make it. You have to wait until the next day. Friday and Saturday opens only half a day. And then uh, uh, it, it's now opens uh, maybe five hours a day uh, in the regular days. So uh, uh, and a lot of discrimination policies have been imposed on Palestinians to be able uh, to see. So what we Palestinians, I remember myself as a young person, what will be my dream? What, what, am I able to think of and what am I able to dream of? Today, people dream of driving their own car and reaching out to the Mediterranean Sea from the West Bank. We're not allowed to. If I want to go to the Mediterranean, uh, if I have a permit and I, I want to go to the Mediterranean, transportation only will cost me $300 back and forth. Today from Bethlehem, one hour away. You know, just imagine, this is really insane. It is totally insane. Uh, uh, we are living in a situation where we have to live in Palestine. The average income, the average income is uh, $450, but we have to pay New York and Chicago prices. Uh, that is really for sure. So what type of dreams we have, it will be 
uh, completely killed and suffocated. Uh, this is very important. The second thing that Israel confiscated the biggest majority of the, about 60% of the West Bank, where Palestinians have limited area to build. So we are developing within the towns. So housing became a problem for us. Normally, we, never, we don't have housing issues. We have a very open country. We can build and expand, but we are living in a housing housing problem because we can build in a very limited area. Today, due to the Israeli policies of land confiscation within Zone C, so, so land prices became really high. So imagine land prices, the impact of land prices on young Palestinians. They cannot afford it anymore. So many of young Palestinians today are thinking of immigration. So let's look at Europe. Europe, are you willing to host large number of young Palestinian immigrants to host them? Of course you don't want to. You have a lot of immigrants you want to get rid of. But if you don't want immigrants as Europe and in America, Northern America, you should work to make the lives of the people in their own countries really good so they won't immigrate to your countries. Because initially we don't want to leave home and go to immigrate for another countries. This is very important, but we live under a brutal Zionist, Israeli fascist occupation that makes our life so difficult and miserable, makes our dreams uh, really killed. They are killed before even we dream them. So what to be young people have, what their chances are. Today, uh, people go to study in university and they know they will not find a job after they graduate. <laughs> You know, imagine this type of conditions that we, we have. Uh, most of our engineers and doctors and so on are working in uh, United Arab Emirates or any other country. Here, it is very difficult for creating a proper life. We are not living a proper life. We, are, we need to live a proper life and families to be able to live like your own families. This is what we're looking for. That is really important, you know. I myself didn't have a proper honeymoon. I have to cross major checkpoints to go for my honeymoon. I didn't have a permit and my wife didn't have a, an ID. And imagine when we go to a honeymoon, we have to spend one week in the, in the same hotel. <laughs> you know, just this is just to you and have an idea. So lives of Palestinians is so difficult. It's so difficult. So trauma is in our subconscious today. Every Palestinian is traumatized and it is in our subconscious. You know, what the, this means that this type of trauma one day will come to explode and it will explode. You know, I don't blame anybody for doing anything because we are traumatized and we have to have it inside and we are not allowed to scream from, um, from pain. You know, imagine when you are a young person, you are not allowed to scream from pain. So this is the conditions that we and young Palestinians have to go through. Thank you, George. It's seriously so suffocating. I mean, I know for my own family, the reason why they came to America is because my uncles were at the age where they could just get arrested and there was no opportunity for them. And that's why they decided to come here. But inshallah we will all return. Um, of course, of course but, we will. <laughs> inshallah, we will, of course. Um, but let's 
talk a little bit about how we can support you and we can support Siraj. Um, what can our what can the, our listeners do to support you guys? Number one, Palestine, historic mandate Palestine is known globally as the Holy Land. Many people come to visit the Holy Land. Sadly, they visit this country not in an ethical and responsible way. I invite everybody from the world to come and visit this land, but in an ethical and responsible way. Number one, where their money is spent ethically and responsibly, not supporting Israeli illegal settlements and not to support Israeli businesses, not to support the occupation and not to support the Israeli military. This is really very important. So number one, you need to, you are welcome here. You are welcome as a friend and neighbor. You are welcome as our guest, but you are not welcome to support the occupation. Number two, you need to be engaged with the people and understand their pain and suffering. You know, many Christians come to visit this land, but they never get their hands dirty and engaged with the people and understanding their suffering and everything. Number three, the best way to visit the land is by walking and by meeting with the people locally and stay at people's homes and so on. We need the world to know that you are welcome to visit Palestine as Palestinians are the most hospitable people and very hospitable and genuinely happy. I am genuinely happy. Sorry, today I was a bit speaking with anger because I am angry but we are genuinely happy. So we need to bring people to experience this hospitality and happiness that we have. Happiness that's coming outside of a very out of a very difficult condition. This is important. So we at Siraj Center organizes all kinds of travel for people to come and meet the land and the people. So we, we are happy to continue with your support and your support be come to visit Palestine and be engaged with the Palestinians. Asfur tallim nishibak waliyanunu khabbini andik khabbini dakhlik yanunu khabbini andik khabbini dakhlik yanunu iltillu inta min wain Welcome back. I'm Danica from Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. And we are back with my second guest, Amira from SJP Chicago. We're here this week to talk about um, you know, actually, I'm just going to read a quote, sort of set the stage for this conversation. It's definitely a really important one. Um, and it's been a conversation people have been having more often, which has been um, useful and good. I'm going to read a quote from wokescientist.substack.com, who wrote a really, really um, great piece on this topic. Um, here's the quote. The selective focus on women and children and simultaneous erasure of the suffering, deaths, injuries, and pain of black and brown men is part of the Western imperialist propaganda. It is a deliberate, insidious, calculated attempt by those in power to paint our men as terrorists. Thus, it is implied that they are deserving of pain, 
torture, death, or any harm that befalls upon them for the greater good. Um, A lot of us have been, you know, hearing sort of the messaging around what's happening in Gaza as, you know, a women and children's issue. And certainly (laughs) this war is affecting or this uh, the siege and the um, non-stop bombardment since October 7th on Gaza has affected women and children. Certainly Um, half of the casualties have been children. Half of the population in Gaza is under 18. Um, So certainly it does affect children. Um, But what's being ignored is sort of the um, harm coming to Palestinian men and why it's important for us to sort of break through that narrative. Um, so, Amira, thank you so much for being here. Um, boys and men in Gaza are like pulling their loved ones out of the rubble, tirelessly looking for food and water and doing whatever they can for their community um, in the past month and a half and um, since the season in Gaza began. What do you think people need to know about men and boys in Gaza and the rest of Palestine? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. Um, The first question that you start out with and the quote you just introduced, I think, perfectly framed this conversation. There's this notion, and this first point I want to make sure I attribute to Muhammad Gurd. It's an idea that I got to speak to him about when he visited Chicago, um, and he elaborates on, at the end of Rivka, his, um, the, the first book he published through Haymarket, but there's this notion of like ethnocentric civility that's meant to humanize and rob Palestinians of their agency. And it infantilizes Palestinians in hopes of determining or helping other people determine that they deserve liberation. And it kind of draws on this point that we must qualify our dead and say that, you know, they're just boys playing soccer on the beach, or he was just a man that was developmentally delayed, um, or he was someone wearing a press vest or performing an operation and therefore he was undeserving of death um, or murder in the way that he was. And then even then, there are still questions about the validity, like the validity of victimhood for a Palestinian man. So then instead of focusing on liberation efforts, people have to invest in media and research to prove the innocence of Palestinian men and their oppression because a Palestinian man can't just die. And I think one of the most visceral experiences I've had is when I was able to visit um, the refugee camp in Janin, where a lot of Palestinian resistance comes out of. I remember watching these children um, kind of play around these graves where a lot of younger martyrs, around 15 to 22 years old, were buried. Uh, it was it looked like an empty parking lot. Basically, that's what the cemetery was for how pulverized the refugee camp was. And I remember just thinking, and I mean, as, as a group of Palestinians visiting, all of us really thinking like, wow, like just praying that God would like protect these children because these children, it's not like a in the American or like Western framework, you know, you're, you're a child until you're 18. Um, and that at the hands of Israel, once you're basically 12 and even before um, you're a threat and aggressor. So there's this naive belief that Palestinians will acquire credibility once they have the mass respectability. It's a direct quote from Muhammad Good. And you have to like appear rational and not hostile, but when the entire world watches these hospitals crumble with everyone inside perishing within minutes, um, we kind of understand how flawed this logic is and that no amount of credibility from our oppressors or those collaborating with them or anyone that doesn't stand firmly against them will ever 
really free us, but like we're not, we can't ask these same, um, these same forces to humanize Palestinian men. Thank you. Um, and a lot of, you know, I would say a lot of well-meaning people are using the women and children talking point. You know, they mean well, uh, you know, people in the West sometimes, and they don't, maybe they don't realize they're sort of playing into this propaganda that allows the occupation to continue as it has, um, to try and like gain sympathy for people, to like try and win points over people. So why do we all need to like really, really work hard on rejecting that narrative when it comes to discussing Palestine, like whether it's with our families or friends or whatever? Yeah, this is one of the first times I'm actually so grateful for Twitter because it's just like such an important question. And I'm so proud to hear a lot of like grassroots organizers that I work alongside um, and kind of just have been learning from like staunchly rejecting this talking point. Like, and I think firstly, like, let's construct a narrative. This language is a way to garner sympathy and ask for humanitarian support for Palestinians as like a poor people subjected to this military superpower. But this is a liberal ideology that maintains the capitalist status quo and encourages people to feel bad. So then they can clear their moral conscience by donating to NGOs, wipe their hands clean of any participation in the occupation, the genocide. That's what we're seeing a bunch of these celebrities who've already come out with like really harmful statements in support of Israel um kind of backtrack instead of like formally or publicly apologizing just kind of put out these links to um NGOs to donate to Gaza so from sympathetic parties it's easier to convince people to care and act when you see like a body bag smaller than like the size of your own pillow like everyone's gonna feel bad for that everyone's gonna say oh protect children that's uh but that's so messed up um, and right now, this framing is super harmful and that decontextualizes Gaza from the broader colonial project that started over 75 years ago, but even decades before then. And it's an odd thing for me to even understand because in 2021, with the dispossession of land and homes in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, um, we were reminding people this is an extension of the ongoing Nakba that started in 1948 and that it's never stopped. And people seem to be really attentive to that and understanding and were able to contextualize um, kind of like the colonial roots of Israel and America's complicity. But then here we are again in 2023, reminding everyone that the massacring and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people didn't occur in a vacuum on October 7th. Um, and I read a tweet that said right before this, um, right before this call, actually, that said Israel's an army with a state, so it can get away with military and civil, it can get away with the idea that military and civil society are one and the same meaning that society under colonialism becomes in its entirety an arena of war and a confrontation without front lines. Um, so when we reduce, when we reduce the, or a historicize the, the question of Palestine, quote unquote, and um, Reza's role in it for the, for the past at least 50 years um, to a humanitarian cause, it completely neglects, I mean, every other part of Palestine that is facing um, increased oppression right now right before you on the on the show we had george um who's talking to us from bethlehem and like talking about like the treatment that the palestinian men face in the west bank just like going about their daily lives like they're oftentimes sort of on the front lines of like the occupation's violence um and largely i think it's like they the idf and like the israel lobby understands that like they don't really have to 
like garner sympathy for those sorts of actions um largely because of this sort of discourse that we're talking about and you know tangentially how do you think the narrative compares to like israeli men who are talked about like where even idf soldiers uh who died on october 7th who are part of like an active colonial army committing genocide are touted as like heroes and victims while like Palestinian like how do you how do you compare the two and like how do you see that contradiction yeah I think that's one thing that um being a Palestinian American has afforded me this kind of capacity and ability to use America as a perfect example in parallel to Israel when you think of how the IDF is portrayed we can use American soldiers and veterans in Iraq as a perfect parallel one side is legitimate and dignified while the other party is condemned as terrorists so we need to remember that Western, the Western media landscape is, is especially not a neutral space, especially like um, specifically the American one. America has a long history of propaganda and political doctrines that have shaped and empowered American imperialism. Israel is following in the same example. So we've seen these historical depictions of Palestinians in the media that rely on Islamophobic rhetoric and prey on 9-11 fear-mongering. Actually, one movie that I can recommend that I think is really productive in understanding these uh, dichotomies and misrepresentations um, is Real Bad Arabs, real as an R-E-E-L, um, directed by Jack Shaheen. And there was a friend that just reminded me yesterday that the relationship between the American and the Palestinian is one between the exploiter and the exploited. And generally, refugees and occupied people are never going to be allowed to have a political project. And that is so clear in Gaza. Like the Palestinian people are an occup occupied people fragmented throughout the years into different um, segments of civil society. Like there's Gaza, historic Palestine or 48, Jerusalem and the West Bank. And what it boils down to is this is a consequence of a subtle colonial project meant to cleanse the land of its indigenous people. And the imperialist, and the imperialist project will always position those who resist it as aggressors that have no true internet and they have no true international accountability. So um, them being touted as heroes, I mean, that's what they are to their own scheme. That's This is the plan that has been like flagged around and um, people have, pro have had pride in for over 75 years. So they are heroes in their own plan. I mean, um, but the hope, is that anybody with a moral conscience will understand that the plan is fundamentally flawed in ways that most genocides, um, yeah, most genocides would be considered now. I mean, the problem is we're not relying on like hindsight rhetoric. We can see this actively happening. So the hope is to stop it. Um, so Code Pink is a, you know, we've been around for like 20 years as a feminist led organization <laughs> and it came up a lot in the early 2000s you know sort of our um part of the sort of manufactured consent for the invasions the u.s invasions that happened in the early 2000s was like we have to save like muslim women from you know whatever and like i think the uh, Israel lobby is like also taking that talking point when talking about like Palestinians in Gaza and like um, as a feminist org, you know, we do take like the feminist lens on things. And I think that's what people kind of get caught up on, like being a feminist and like only talking about like women when like 
the men who are being killed in Gaza, the ones that have like the doctors that are staying behind, they're like like husbands, fathers, brothers, uncles, like, you know, making up such like a large pillars in like every family and community. And what happens when like, you know, anyone who's ever lost anyone, like anyone who's like lost someone suddenly like knows how families, like entire families can fall apart by just losing like one member. And so, <laughs> excuse me, um, how does the dehumanization of Pal- Palestinian men affect women in Gaza and like greater Palestine? Yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not too sure if there's a, a, a particular term coined for this but in the same ways that like arab men under the guise of like islamophobia um are seen as like really abusive and patriarchal and controlling and um all of these terrible things through like a western lens like palestinian women really have no say um and how and how to define their own features both within the patriarchy and um, within the occupation, in a Western white liberal feminist framework, men and women have always had distinct roles in resistance, right? Like, this isn't true, but this is like the reality of how it's understood. But it, this sustains like the sympathetic lens of women as like corporal mediums of reproduction. And that's how we breathe life as like homemakers. So we're dehumanizing Palestinian men who are like part of the resistance. And then even if we are sympathetic to the cause, Palestinian women are only part of the resistance in that they can have more kids and they're teaching their kids to be strong and trying to protect their children in their houses and whatever. And it reduces masculinity to what men can provide and protect. Um, But what can that even look like when homes are being demolished and your family's life is being stolen from you? So, I mean, one academic I think people can take a look at is Nadine Nabid, and she's an incredible academic at UAC who reminds us that colonization increases patriarchal violence because the oppression of men and theft of autonomy is further aggressed. So the biggest threat to every Palestinian woman and femme-identifying person and their liberation in a myriad of realms will always be the occupation first and foremost. So like we, there are so many hurdles when it comes to social change when basic necessities and human rights are, are furthering like basically all of Palestinian plight. So if you can address the root issue and what's hindering um, Palestinian women from, I mean, progressing within their own civil society, then that means the dehumanization of Palestinian men only works to exasperate that. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood, blood for 